Well, we've just been hearing Annie Farrington's perspective on the Battle of Dublin and the outbreak of the Irish Civil War, as she recounted in her witness statement to the Bureau of Military History. Let's hear now a voice from the RTE radio archives. At the end of June 1922, Emmett Dalton was in command of the Free State troops assaulting the forecourts during the Battle of Dublin. He was attempting to dislodge the anti-treaty IRA militants who had occupied the building since April. Here he's speaking about how the building's occupiers were finally forced to surrender and the destruction of the public records office in the western block of the forecourts complex. Speaking now from memory, it was a couple of days before it became evident to me that we were not going to have any surrender from the people inside the forecourts because it was obvious that they were sheltering down in the basements and not being affected by the gunfire, which literally was only making holes against the wall or going through the occasional window in the building. So I decided then that it would have to be done by mounting a, an onslaught onto the building. So we put a gun at the other end of the forecourts near the church. There's a street at the back there behind the Fourports Hotel. And we fired to make a gap in the railings at that side so where we could uh, infiltrate the place and charge, make a charge by the infantry. Everything was set in order. But it should be remembered that the, uh, the garrison of the Fourports at this time had mined and undermined the entire building. And particularly, they had uh, mined uh, a records office where documents of irreplaceable documents were being kept. Be that as it may, anyhow, whatever damage was done by the gun, the artillery was minimal. The real damage to the forecourts was done when they exploded the mines inside, uh, which destroyed the building and destroyed a great many irreplaceable articles. There we heard the voice of Emmett Dalton, one of the officers in charge of the attack on anti-treaty forces in the forecourts in June 1922, the event that signalled the beginning of the Irish Civil War. He was talking there about the destruction of seven centuries of records that were housed in the records treasury at the forecourts. The decade of centenaries has seen many projects carried out by our archives and historical institutions in connection with the events of 100 years ago. In 2018, one of the biggest and possibly most difficult projects was announced beyond 2022, Virtual Record Treasury of Ireland. We covered it on the History Show back then. The aim was to rebuild virtually the public records office and the records that were destroyed. Joining me now to discuss how the project is progressing are Dr. Kieran Wallace, Deputy Director of Beyond 2022, and Zoe Reid, Keeper of Records at the National Archives in Ireland. And you're both very welcome indeed to the History Show. Kieran, um, you came on the programme, you talked with us about this back in uh, 2018 when the project was really only beginning. It was a sort of a gleam in, in your eye and in other people's eyes as well. Looking back, did you have any idea what a mammoth task that you had ahead of you? And I suppose the, the follow-up question, which I'll ask straight away, is where are you now with the project? Well, did we know what the mammoth task was? Uh, it was a gleam in Peter Crooks's eye and uh, we had some suspicion from doing early scoping that there was a lot out there, more than people anticipated. 
But uh, research by its very nature is unknowable. So we headed out into the into the wild jungle and found tons of stuff. Um, thank goodness there's more than just Peter Crooks and I on it now and uh, the late Shay Lawless, who is the other founding idea behind it. It has become a team of, I think we have up to 15 people now at certain times, between archivists, historians, computer scientists, all beavering away, working with all our partners and sort of allies in, in the work. Where are we now with it? Um, we're in a different place than we thought, partly because of COVID, but also because of more success in certain areas than we anticipated. When we began, we thought we knew we had one particularly rich batch of information on the medieval period. And we were going to call that our gold seam or like our shiny jewel that we knew we had in, in hand as replacement records for lost medieval records. But in the course of our work, we discovered two more gold seams, if you like, um, on the Cromwellian era and on the late 17th, late 18th century uh, religious census. And the amount of completion and the amount of replacement materials for those is particularly rich, as well as bits and pieces of many, many other things. So we now have, I think, upwards of 120,000 historical documents. Most of these were known in their different archives, but they weren't known to be all replacements from the lost Dublin archive. And being able to bring them back together suddenly sort of brings us this sort of, you know, a, a leap ahead in the, in the work that we were doing. So we're at a place now where we're, we're good to go for our launch at the end of June and beyond. And I don't want to be negative. Any disappointments, any areas where you thought, OK, we're probably going to make progress here and you've discovered maybe not so much? I suppose the... The probably, I wouldn't overstate as much as probably, we hoped or we had this hope that we might find, you know, a chunk of the 19th century census somewhere, the statutory census. And we are probably the thousandth people to have tried to investigate this. And they really, what the National Archives has found is what there is to be found. Mm. And there really is nothing beyond that. In disappointments, I think, no, because we were following threads that were laid down in the 1920s by the early archivists straight after the fire, they had a reasonable idea of what the lines of avenues, avenues of investigation should be. And we followed those up. So I think, no, there'll be no, actually, no disappointments. I mean, more maps than we thought, more uh, court records, more wills than we thought. I don't want to make it sound too big a boast, but like the amount of stuff we found, the problem has been one of scale, not one right. of lack. And is it still a 10-year project? <laughs> this was my, uh, we said this before we had any state funding whatsoever. Um, at that stage, when we spoke last in 2018, Peter and Shay and I were going for some state funding, which the state came through under the decade of Centenary's programme. They funded us through to the end of this year to get up to the Centenary and a bit beyond. We now know already, and the let's say the funders are aware that there are new threads of information coming towards us that we couldn't, just physically couldn't get to in time. So we'll show everybody everything we have by June. But we know there are other, let's, let's call them sort of unopened boxes uh, in different repositories around the world that certainly merit a couple of years research, more than a few years research to, to bring them to the public. Um, Zoe, one part of the project obviously is looking for records in archives around the world and it's a virtual uh, project. Uh, but records were actually salvaged from the ruins and as a senior conservator at the National Archives, you and your team's job has been to look at the documents that were collected from the ruins. Tell us about that project and where that's brought you. Where that's brought us is, again, with a lot more documents that we th than we thought. I suppose the exciting thing for us was whenever I first came into the National Archives uh, 20 years ago, I was pretty much always told about the salved collections and these were boxes of brown paper parcels of stuff that had been lifted out of the forecourts but nobody had ever really worked on and looked at. And again, the decade of centenary was that perfect positioning of 
can we do something with this material and what would we do with it? So that was always a known to be there. And then also we've looked back as well. And I think it was unjust to say that nothing happened between the 1920s until the early 2000s. And so bits and pieces by the archivists and historians who worked previously had been done on various things that had come out of the four courts of fire. But the project we embarked on in 2017 was very much looking at those unopened parcels, about 378 of them, and opening them up and finding out what was inside. And we're not talking about charred remains, are we? We are. Oh, we are talking about We are about talking charred about charred remains, remains in some cases. Yeah. Um, and that was a partly... The really exciting thing about the project was... I'd imagine you have to open them very carefully if the charred remains. You have to open them very carefully and it was a little bit like Christmas for the team who were doing them because you just didn't know what each parcel was going to bring. In some cases, it was material that was actually in very good condition and that's led us to our thinking, you know, where was it in the building in 1922 when the fire happened? And then there was other material that is literally... I mean, they use charred remains for a reason. It looks like it came out of the grate of a fire. Mm. Well, in many ways, it did. 25,000 pieces of paper or parchment. Because yes. when we think of archives, you know, we tend to think of paper. Yeah. Uh, we tend to think of, you know, A4 paper. But you're talking here also about parchment. So what does parchment look like when it comes out of a massive fire? A crispy pompadour. <laughs> <laughs> Quite simply. Um, if you think of it, you take it back. So most of the parchment, if you think parchment is animal skin, so it's reacted to the heat of a fire in a very different way to paper. Paper's been kind of baked by the fire. Parchment dries out. The moisture comes out of it. And so it shrinks and contracts and distorts because if you think of what the parchment makers would have done when they made the parchment it was to take animal skin and stretch it to make it flat so you could write on it so think of that when you get indian takeaway indian food yes. the bit that they include what you didn't ask for exactly pompadoms that's what they look like because they're distorted because the heat has affected them in different ways and that depends on how they were stored how they were rolled a lot of the medieval parchments were many long large sheets of documents that were then rolled together that's how they stored them they didn't put them in a binding they didn't put them in a folder or a file they rolled them and so that has then sort of had a sort of play on how the parchment reacted to the fire. And presumably you can't just sort of sprinkle water over it and suddenly it sort of opens like a like a chrysalis and, no, and there it is all before you. Not quite sprinkling water, but you can introduce water to it in a very gentle way. And, well, that's, ha- what and that's what you have to do, That's what it? you have to do. You have to think about it exactly that. You you want to try and rehydrate them. So, so it's the opposite of dehumidifying. Exactly. It's rehumidifying, it's, it's isn't humidification. it? It's humidification. All right. And what you do is I've... If you ever get to come into the National Archives, I'm the place and the the space in there that has the most fun and the most toys. Because I've got all these gizmos and bits of equipment and kit that help me do exactly that. So the rehumidification, I've got... It's the best way to describe it, and Kieran knows this well. It looks a bit like an incubator. It's like a, a dome that sits on top of a table, and I plug in what is a scientific version of a facial, you know, a facial something that will take moisture, take water, and turn it into a vapor. Then I put my parchment pieces inside it. I can monitor them as I see the moisture slowly going back into the documents to make them soft and supple. So then I can start to manipulate them, reshape them, and as they dry, I hold them in place with magnets, and that works. That helps them sort of get flat again so people like Kieran can come in and read them and look at them. So you can actually physically, Kieran, you can go in and you can actually physically read these. It's It's been amazing. It is my favourite visit. I'm sure Zoe must be fed up with us saying, can we see one more? But when you see the 
the results come out from what were crisped and crumpled things into, now sometimes they need a medievalist with Latin to read them because they tend to be the older type of records. But certainly when, uh, when, when we're back to things like Open Day and Culture Night and so forth and they come back to the National Archives in public, it's, if you're in Dublin, it's the best visit you can go on to see those. But to see a document that you know was six, seven hundred years old, was through a fire, was bundled up for a century, came out and mm. is now legible again. And you think that the scribe who wrote that, he or she possibly put that pen mark on that ink, on that paper, on that parchment in 1300. This is absolutely uh, chilling. And obviously your project is a virtual uh, project. Yes. I mean, Zoe's is an actual project. Yes. So presumably what you want to do is then digitise that material. Right. So what we do is we would digitise that material, anything that's that's legible. So basically we while Zoe is working at the materiality, the physical substance of the of the records, we're interested in the words on the paper or the words on the parchment. So while we're not a mass digitization project, we don't aim to digitize entire libraries. We find to find the best stuff, the juiciest stuff, the most legible stuff and digitize it and make it available. So we're making decisions all the time. Like if there's a, a record written in Latin and we would have to digitise it and then translate it and make it available to the public. That might take a lot of work and might not be a huge amount of history in it. But if it's something that came to the fire, by its very nature, the public want to see it. So we they always get sort of top priority. But yes, we're always looking for replacement materials, copies, transcripts made before 1922. They're in archives and libraries all around the world. We're getting huge cooperation from scores of libraries. We have, I mean, apart from our five core partners, the National Archives in Dublin, Public Record Office Northern Ireland, National Archives in the UK, Trinity Library and the Irish Manuscripts Commission, We've like over 60 different archives and libraries, cathedrals, county libraries, archives and schools, giving us stuff, giving us digital images of stuff that we're able to weave together on a digital platform so the public can see it as if it was all back on the shelves in the forecourts in 1921. What about paper material then? I mean, I'm sure the FBI in Quantico or whatever could (laughs) make something out of a piece of burnt paper and they could possibly even read what was written on it. Can you do can you do that kind of thing? We're not pushing it quite that far just yet. We can do an awful lot with the paper that is maybe singed and burnt around the edges. Um, If you think about paper documents, they tend to have been folded. So sometimes you'll have burn marks in the centre of something and the rest of it is okay. Again, the element on what we're dealing with with the paper is maybe not so much the burnt, it's the mould and the kind of the mushed. So don't forget, it was an 11-month project to take everything out of the rubble. And that's how long it took. And all that material would have been exposed to the elements and would have become water damaged. So an awful lot sometimes of what we're doing from the paper end of things is stuff that was in big blocks and kind of has become very distorted and very, very dirty and very kind of uh, crumpled and creased because of that element as opposed to the fire. The brittle stuff is brittle as yet nobody has come up with something or some way of getting anything back into those fibres which have just become very short and do just want to crumble. There are different things that we're looking at in terms of trying to look at things that you can't open. And there's huge technology within the conservation research and heritage research field in terms of a thing called X-ray tomography, which is basically taking something and X-raying it lots and lots of time and then trying to unroll it, unwrap it, um, a bit like the Dead Sea Scrolls or there's a large project in TNA at the minute with unopened letters. They're doing that there. So you can do that sort of thing. But what we're doing is very much the physical, making sure that we are doing the work to facilitate the researchers that the documents can be opened up, they can be handled safely and they can be read. 
Kieran, tell me about the 1766 religious census. What is it and uh, what have you found and how have you found it? Well, it's this is one of these uh, genealogical resources that's known. So you'll see it on a lot of genealogy websites. It's on people know of it. It was a an attempt by the Irish House of Lords to measure the population of the country by religious denomination. So the Church of Ireland bishops in each diocese sent word out to their clergy to say, go and count all the Catholics, Protestants, Presbyterians uh, and other sort of uh, uh, dissenting populations. The desire was to have heads of households. So they'd name the head of each household, which was generally a man at that time. And so you'd get a list of, let's say, 20 families of whom X were Protestant, X were Catholic, with the head of household there. In some cases, the clergy went and listed the individuals in the household that was going beyond. In other cases, they just counted and said, literally, there are 14 Catholic families and eight Protestant families and three Presbyterian families. So all this information was fed back into the House of Lords, who started to compile reports. Those reports were stored in the Public Record Office. Many of them lost, but many of them survived. But what's more important is very many of the originals before 22 were copied and they were copied and the copies were stored in a lot, were stored in Belfast and Prony and in the representative church body, the Church of Ireland Library and Archive uh, here in Dublin and other venues. People know about them, but no one's ever tried to draw it all together into one sort of super replacement collection. And once my colleague Brian Gurren got stuck into this work and he's like a, a man machine for doing this, um, he's been pulling together records and even like one single sheet, add it into the bundle and you get this entire map of the country of where there is coverage. In the absence of the 19th century statutory census, which is all lost forever, being able to go backwards a step into the late 18th century and understand the religious makeup of townlands, of parishes, of dioceses, and very often have names. I mean, we are getting, I think we have perhaps as many as half of the originals. We've come replacements for almost half of the original 1766 census return. How many of the of the censuses did we actually lose in the forecast? Because I know some of the material was actually pulped during yeah. the First yeah. World War, yeah. so it's not all down no. to uh, the, the forecourts, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, and I could oh, stand to be corrected by Zoe on this, um, if I, <laughs> I, I gather it's the, the pre-famine, so 1821 yep. through to 1851 yep. were in the building, and yep. then post-famine, so the post, like later 19th century, have been deliberately pulped by policy. Although we, I now know that the, the archivists at the time were aghast at this policy and were trying to stop it, but it had actually gone ahead and been destroyed by the time the archivists got a chance to try and stop it. So, so we're, we're stuck with, we're I mean, stuck. we're very yeah. grateful yeah. to have 1901 and 1911, Indeed. and they are Indeed. an absolutely fantastic uh, resource. When people go to the website, what are they, what, what do they experience? What are they going to be experienced? What is your hope when the project finishes that they will be able to experience? They'll have two ways in, if you like. One way in, which is the exciting way in, is the virtual reality model of the destroyed building. So the building itself had a front portion, which was the administrative office that was badly damaged and repurposed now as the Court of Appeal. The back part of the building, the record treasury, was the purpose-built archive completely destroyed. No one alive today was ever inside that building. We've, through OPW plans held in the National Archives, through some very rare photographs, we've made a virtual reality model of the entire complex. You can go around it, through it, in it, go along the shelves and the floors, see the reading room as it was. And that'll be like an exhibition space. I think people who might not be attracted to walk into an archive automatically will enjoy the virtual reality model. I think younger people, children will enjoy the virtual reality model. It leads you through to the normal website. 
but people can go past the VR straight to the normal website. You can search by by any search terms you want. You can filter by date if you're particularly interested in the early 19th century or the famine, whatever. The big collections I mentioned, the medieval exchequer, the Cromwellian land records and the 1766 census will have their own sort of big buttons that you can zoom in on those because they're particularly rich and deep. But every word we have, everything, like it's not just finding records by the label at the top of the page. We will have transcriptions of over 50 million words of print and manuscript writing. So it's both print and handwritten that would be searchable. So you can put in a place name, a person name, a concept, a theme, a sheriff, whatever you like, and it'll bring back the hits. Where there's a digital replacement, you'll be presented with the digital replacement and it'll show you where it lives, if it lives in the Bodleian in Oxford or in the Huntington in California or in the National Archives in Bishop Street in Dublin. And if we don't have a replacement, it'll show you whatever we know about the record as it was before 22, with a sort of a little sort of blank uh -uh kind of logo saying, sorry, no joy, this so far but it may turn up in future mm. research. But what we'll be able to show, we're excited to see people's reaction. I think there's more there than people anticipate. And Zoe, the actual material, obviously it's all going to be digitised, it'll all be up there, which will be accessible to anybody who wants to consult it. But where is the actual material? What happens to it? The actual material is still in the National Archives in Bishop Street and it's been beautifully conserved and with careful consideration it will be accessible. Will it be on display at some point? It's too early to say mm. whether or not we've just completed one very successful exhibition and that was our first on the treaty. I think it's too early to say yet whether we will actually have a full exhibition. We kind of hope to going forward. Because no. I would imagine some of these parchment documents are actually quite beautiful. They are. People so, would love yeah. to actually physically see them. Yes, yeah, some of the parchment documents that are beyond my skill set in terms of conservation will be staying as they are. And some of them do look incredible and they look almost like bits of coral reef because of the way that the parchment has contracted and, and is shaped now. Those, no, they'll be closed, but we have done some high-level photography um, of those and we'll make those accessible. And, and we we realised with the stuff that's very badly damaged, um, there's such an interest in it that if we're developing any sort of list or finding aids to this material, that photography has given us that way into people still being able to see it, but not actually handle it and cause it any further damage. The stuff that's been conserved and is in good condition and can be accessed by researchers, it'll be the same policy that the National Archives always had come into the Bishop Street and call it up and hopefully you'll get to see it sitting at a reading room desk. And Kieran, the project, the official, tell me about the official launch of the uh, the project and events surrounding so, that. Through May, we'll have two events in May, one on the 4th of May, which is looking at the Chief Secretary's papers and their really important set of papers covering the entire island of Ireland. And that's a, an online event between Public Record Office Northern Ireland and National Archives Ireland. 26th of May, we have a very special Conservation Day, which Zoe is deeply involved in, and that's conservators from the National Archives London, National Archives in Ireland and Public Record Office Northern Ireland talking about different conservation techniques and what conservators have learned about the sort of the techniques they can do to retrieve and to bring records back from the edge. Then it leads up to the actual launch. So our state launch is on Monday the 27th of June, and that's when the Virtual Record Treasury of Ireland will be out. People might have heard of us as beyond 2022. You can conceive of that as being the construction firm, the research crowd. <laughs> the thing we're building is the Virtual Record Treasury of Ireland. It'll be free, online, aimed to be used by everyone from school children through genealogists, professional researchers, local historians. And the entirety of what we have to show will be shown on the 27th of June. And that week through to the 30th of June, we'll have 
other events on to sort of back up the actual initial launch. There, are, We have an artist in residence. We'll be looking at artistic responses to cultural loss and so forth. So um, I'd say the best thing to do is to watch our website and our Twitter feed. So from the end of June, if you want to access it, it'll be virtualtreasury.ie? Virtualtreasury. Uh, uh, yes, that's right. Yeah. yeah, from the end of June. But that, at the moment, that, that website is, is closed until the reveal on the 27th. Yeah. yeah, OK. It's beyond beyond uh, 2022 at the moment, dot yeah. .ie at the moment. Well, obviously, you've been unable to digitise and conserve everything, although you are slowly but surely uh, getting there. But just like your predecessors in 1922, you've left a lot of work, I suppose, for future conservators and future generations and historians to continue the work for years to come. Zoe Reid and uh, Kieran Wallace, we wish you all the best with the, the procedure, with the project, with the launch, and we'll put up details of the events that Kieran mentioned on our website. Thank you both very much indeed for talking to us on The History Show. Thank Thanks, you. Miles. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme and indeed all we've time for on this series of the show. This will be our last history show for a while, but we'll be back in the autumn with another run of episodes. In the meantime, details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website rte.ie forward slash history show. A quick word before we go about a history documentary that's coming up soon on RTE television. Shackleton's Cabin tells the story of Sven Haberman, a historical object conservator based in Connemara, with a passion for the heroic age of Antarctic exploration. In a fascinating twist of fate, Ernest Shackleton's cabin from his final expedition to the Antarctic on board the Quest has ended up in Sven's workshop in Letterfrack, awaiting restoration. This is a heartwarming film about a friendship across time and getting close to your hero through a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Shackleton's Cabin will go out on RTE1 television on Bank Holiday Monday, the 2nd of May, at 6.30pm. My thanks tonight to Kieran Dunn and Mark McGrath on sound and our researcher Liz Gillis. Our reader tonight was Kira Clancy. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>